Very good. Well, it is, again, a privilege to be able to share with all of you this morning. And so last uh, time I taught, we started this uh, series on church history, which I enjoy studying. I hope you all are enjoying it. If you, at any point you find me boring or uh, unapplicable or I say something too off the mark, please uh, come let me know and I'll try to re- <laughs> Refocus, uh, but um, I, <laughs> John will point out my heresy if I happen to fall into it. Okay. All right. So, so I started last time with the why of church history because um, I think that's something we always want to we want to ask ourselves. Okay, why why are we even talking about this? Um, and this morning I'm going to get into the the historical context of where the early church began. But I do want to recap a little bit on, on why, just because I want, I want to keep this in focus. Um, and um, so as we're going through, we can ask ourselves, why, why is this important? Why does it, how does it apply to us today? And so the why is, um, for me, is just to begin with, because Scripture tells us to remember what God has done in the past. And we looked at some verses like Jeremiah 16, 16, which says, Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where, where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest for your souls. Um, so, and then we looked at a number of passages that say, hey, look, look back and see what God has done in the past. We can use that for our own edification and, and even use it that we may help others as we see what God has done in the past, not just history, but even in our own lives. How has God worked in our own lives? And so to look back at those things. Um, so we're, we're able to see the hand of God working. And when we, you see God working, just like the ministry that was done this weekend, you know, we see God doing great things and it encourages us. And so when we look back at the past, we can also see how God has worked and it encourages us. It's also a warning to us where we see where different um, sects of Christianity fell into to bad teaching, heresy. And, um, you know, we talked about like the, uh, the oneness Pentecostals or the Unitarians, which deny the Trinity. And we can look back and see what, what has the church said about the Trinity over the years and um, things like that. Um, but it also gives us hope as we look at, there have been very dark times in history and, um, you know, great persecution but yet God, he continues to work and he delivers people from the persecution. And we see, um, you know, I, I go to the example again, I've mentioned a couple of times, but William Tyndale, how he was, you know, the first to translate from the Greek and Hebrew, the Bible in, into English. And then he gets betrayed. He gets burned at the stake. But as he's going to be burned at the stake, he, he prays that prayer, Lord, open the eyes of the king. And then three years later, Henry VIII orders every parish in England to have a copy of the English Bible at, at, for the people. And so you see God, God works and he uses even these bad times um, to, uh, to do great things. So we can have hope when we, when we look back and, and see how God has worked. Um, and it equips us to defend our faith. Um, like I said before, I, I see church history as an area of apologetics where we can defend what God has done. And we can defend the true history as opposed to um, a distorted view of history. Um, but we also must look at history with humility and recognize that we too have blind spots. So men that God used greatly may have had blind spots in, in their understanding. 
and they made mistakes. You know, they're not perfect people. Uh, Nathan and I were talking about this last week that, you know, um, we can't put all these people on a pedestal and, and give them a halo because, yes, the Lord used them, but even in Scripture, you know, you see God using people that make mistakes, like David falling into sin. And so we want to we have humility and recognize, you know, we shouldn't be on our high horse and condemning everybody because we can make mistakes too, right? We, can, uh, we all have blind spots, and one day the Lord will help us to sort all that out. Um, and oftentimes in history, you see people... Um, there there will be a, a specific focus that people are are dealing with a specific battle within the church that they're trying to refute various forms of heresy and so other things are just not as important and so they don't really think them through and so like Augustine you know he believed that the um, apocrypha was still part of scripture well that wasn't something he was really focusing on though and he um, and he did a lot of other great things so. You know, again, though, we have to realize the specific, the specific context he was in, there are areas he didn't focus on too much. So different things like that, we need, to, we need to recognize the context that they're in and why they might neglect to get very deep into areas that we today can look back in hindsight and say, oh, you know, he was wrong here, um, and we have justification for it. And again, the, the Puritan Francis Woolworth um, in terms of humility, said, God loves to strike straight, straight strokes with crooked sticks. God uses even us messed up people to do, accomplish his purposes. So those are the, my reasons for why we ought to study church history. Oh, a couple of definitions. We talked about these as well that I like to keep in mind as we're, um, we're we're looking at different things in the past. An anachronism, if you remember what an anachronism was, it's where you inappropriately assign um, a current event or a modern event to a historical context that would not have been appropriate. And I gave the silly example that Abraham Lincoln said you should not, uh, you should not use the internet, you should not let children use the internet or something like, you know, something silly like that, right? Well, and you see a lot especially if you look at what the Catholic Church became over the years and the doctrines that they developed, inappropriately uh, applying like the uh, Immaculate Conception and different Marian dogmas that they would apply to early church fathers, but the early church would have never even thought of these things. You know, that's an anachronism when they go back and misappropriately apply it to history. And the other definition was sacralism. And sacralism is that union of church and the state, where the government is the church, the church is the government. And you see that, you know, at the point of Constantine when, when he supposedly becomes a Christian. And it was good in that persecution stopped for the church, but now the Roman government is Christian. And when they go off in directions that were not biblical, um, you see them persecuting various forms. And that comes all the way up to, you know, when the United States, when the pilgrims are coming over, you know, they wanted religious persecution. This wasn't really from secular things. It was because the church at that time would persecute you if you did not believe the way the church believed. And so, you know, the, the First Amendment, freedom of religion, it wasn't, it, it was in the specific context of Christianity, right? That... Um, but if, if the government was, say, 
Presbyterian and they said, you must baptize your babies and you're a Baptist and say, I don't want to baptize my babies. Well, that government can force you to do that, right? So that was one of the reasons they, they wanted this um, freedom of religion in the Constitution. And it was all due to that term sacralism. So again, something to keep in mind as we, as we go along. Um, so we're going to start with this very early church history, simple timeline here. Um, you can kind of divide up church history in roughly 500-year segments. So from the resurrection of Christ and the early church and the apostles um, up to through Nicaea, Council of Nicaea. What, what was, remember the date, one date I want everybody to remember? Joseph, when was Council of Nicaea? <laughs> 325 A.D., Okay, you failed your pop quiz, sorry. Um, 325 AD is Council of Nicaea. When they focused, that was that point, they focused on the Trinity and what does the Bible say about the Trinity. Um, Augustine's Confessions was around 400. Um, that, but the early church fathers is a, roughly that first 500-year period. And then you get up to the Great Schism. Anybody know what the Great Schism was? This is where the church split between East and West. And you get the Roman Catholics in the West and the Eastern Orthodox in the East. Um, that was around 1,000, 1,054 is the year of the Great Schism. So that was the next 500 years. And the next 500 years, roughly to the beginning of the Reformation. Um, and we mark that in 1517 was the 500th year when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. It's kind of the rough um, marking point for the beginning of the Reformation. And you think about where we are now. It's been roughly 500 years. So what's going to happen, <laughs> you know, now? You may, 500 years from now, if the Lord tarries, we may look back and mark this point with uh, something significant. But we'll see. So that's kind of how you divide it up. But right now, we'll be looking at this first 500-year um, period, roughly, the early church fathers period. Um, which is not, it's not taught very often. I don't think it's... Uh, it's very well known, many of the people. You may have um, heard a little bit about it, like you maybe you've heard of Polycarp. Everybody heard of Polycarp? But have you heard of Irenaeus, who was his disciple? Um, you've probably heard of Justin Martyr, right? Justin Martyr was uh, one of the first who was martyred for, for being a Christian. But have you heard of Clement of Rome? Clement was one of the very first writers the early church. And of course, you've probably heard of Augustine, a um, very prolific writer. But have you heard of Ignatius of Antioch? Uh, it's kind of a funny story. So there's Ignatius of Antioch and there's Ignatius of Loyoma. Am I saying that right? Who was uh, about 500 years later. He was actually a contemporary w during the Reformation, but he was a Catholic priest. Uh, kind of a funny, when my wife was writing her book on homeschooling, um, I helped her with various historical quotes and things. And I don't remember what it was, but I found this quote from, his, uh, from Ignatius of Antioch, who was around 100, very early, early second century. And, um, and so I gave it to her. She put it in her book. And when the editor was going through it, uh, the editor read this quote and came back and says, you know, that's a great quote, but I don't know if you want to put that in there because he was Catholic and people might not like you quoting this Catholic. I'm like, what? This was before the Catholic church even existed. And then I realized that we're talking about two different people. <laughs> she was talking about Ignatius of Loyoma, which was in the 1500s. And I was talking about 
Ignatius of Antioch. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different people. There's a number, John Chrysostom, who was known as uh, John Goldenmouth, a prolific writer, very eloquent, um, a number of different people that we'll look at in the very early church. Um, Nick Needham, who I, I mentioned um, using his book, the first of it's called 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. This is the first one on the early church. He says, so whichever period of church history we are studying, it is always worth pausing and reminding ourselves of this. The entire history of the Christian church is rooted in one central reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus of Nazareth had not risen, there would be no church history. So continue to think about that. We're talking about what God has done after Christ was raised from the dead and um, has affected the entire uh, world of history since then. So I um, want to talk about the historical context that the early church was, was started within. And y'all may know a number of these things. We'll first look at the Roman Empire. Of course, Jerusalem is part of the Roman Empire. Um, you know, you read about a lot of what was going on with Rome in Scripture. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about various things that impact that um, the early church because of it being in the Roman Empire. Um, and then we'll talk about the Greek culture, which the Greek culture is actually the dominant culture um, within this context. Uh, Rome, actually, as they took over that part of the world, they loved Greek culture. And um, we'll look at that a little bit. Um, and then, of course, the Jewish context, because Jesus was a Jew. He was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And so those are the three areas that we're going to look at. We'll see if I can get through it all this morning. If not, we'll, we'll pick up next time. But um, this will kind of set the stage for why things happen and different people, and like I said, why they focus on certain things during this early period. So, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. At the time of Jesus in the first century AD, the Roman Empire controlled the whole of the Mediterranean, Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. The empire was made up of a vast variety of ethnic and religious groups. And three main focuses held it together. And those main focuses at this time was one-man rule. And that has a big impact. There was a common economy, so you could trade throughout this whole region. And there was a common intellectual culture. And this is primarily the Greek culture, or Hellenism. Uh, you, you see that word in Scripture, right? The Hellenistic uh, Jews they talked about. These were Jews that had adopted basically grew up in a Greek culture where Greek-speaking Jews, um, it comes from the Greek word for Greece was Hellas. That's where we get that, that term. Um, so it's actually uh, kind of interesting. I talk about the, this Greek, the Romans. Well, I'll, I'll wait on that. I'll wait on that, actually. So Rome had been ruled for a few hundred years by a senate, right? You talk about the, the senate that... Um, that Rome was being ruled by is a democratic form of government. But a series of devastating wars um, in uh, the first century BC, it uh, blew this republic into fragments. And um, 
It also spread a lot of bloodshed um, and destruction across Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. And this led to a necessity of a strong leader taking over. You think about that oftentimes in history when the economy's a wreck and there's just craziness going on. What happens? One man comes to power. You look at that, Hitler, you know, you and Soviet Union, Lenin, you know, and that's not usually a good thing. Is it? <laughs> and that could be a warning for us today, as crazy as things are. Um, so what happens? And by the way, um, Aaron did a fantastic lesson on that intertestamental period. And so it's actually provides some context along with this. I'll try not to really duplicate any of that. But uh, if you haven't listened to Aaron's lesson, it was a few weeks ago on the intertestamental period. It's worth going back and listening to. But in, in 102 BC, Julius Caesar is born. You've probably heard of him. He's the most celebrated soldier and politician in Roman history. However, at the height of his military and political success, Julius was assassinated in 44 BC by a group of senators who still believed in the Republic. But the death of Julius Caesar did not restore the Republic. It simply unleashed a fresh series of civil wars. Julius's young nephew and adopted son, Octavius Caesar, took up his murdered uncle's cause and proved more than equal to the task after defeating Brutus and Cassius and all other rivals, Octavius assumed supreme power over the Roman world in 31 BC. I meant to read a quick passage of scripture before I started this section, and you'll understand why I read this section. It is Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be taxed. Who was Octavius? The Senate gave, we were just talking about Octavius, the Senate gave him the title Augustus, which means exalted one. So this guy who was Julius Caesar's adopted son and nephew, he becomes Caesar Augustus. So this is the point at when Christ is born, right? Augustus has set up, um, has been set up as this very strong leader. And he was a very, very strong leader in the early of his, part of his reign. He was very brutal and he, he shut down rebellions, but he brought peace to the region. Um, and, so, and he was what became the first Roman emperor. Um, it says he reigned from 31 BC to 14 AD. And this is significant because of the impact it had on the early church. So what happens when you have one man in charge? Augustus was actually a pretty good leader, and he brought peace and was fairly well-liked, and he did some diplomatic things that, that um, helped. But now that you've got one man in charge, and that goes on, one man in charge, what happens? Well, what happens when Nero comes into power? Y'all probably heard of Caesar Nero. He was an evil, probably demon-possessed man. This guy was brutal. Um, and destroyed, uh, you know, set, made it his ambition to destroy the church. Uh, you probably heard the story of Nero, how uh, supposedly he wanted to rebuild Rome and make it more beautiful, so he, he burned Rome, right? 
And then what did he do after much of, I think it was, uh, I forget the numbers, but it was something like 14 of the 18 districts of Rome burned. And so he blames it on the Christians who were already considered these weird people, right? Um, and that started the great persecution of Christians during that time. But Nero wouldn't have been in power had all this history led up to putting one man in charge instead of the, the Senate that was, um, had been leading Rome to that point. As Nero's persecution and later Constantine ending that persecution but establishing the church and government rule that became the Catholic Church. So you can see how the, the, the ramifications of this leading, not just, okay, now we've got this one brutal dictator, but then Constantine is now a leader. He becomes a Christian, supposedly. Um, I say supposedly because there's some people that argue, but at least he became um, the church. He established the Christianity as the official religion of Rome at that point. And, uh, but when your state and church again are the same, now this leads to the development of the Catholic church, which then you get a bunch of, uh, heretical doctrine brought in. Okay. So that's kind of the, there's a lot more you could talk about Rome. There's Caesar Augustus. Um, any questions about Rome? We'll move on to the Greek culture. Um, very interesting. Okay, we go to Scripture again. Acts 17, verses 17 to 21. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he he in the therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. The certain, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what is this babbler say? What will this babbler say? Others, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopagus, 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 <laughs> To say, right, sorry. saying, may we know what this new, new doctrine where thou, wherefore, whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So, the Epicureans and the Stoics, these are Greek philosophers. And uh, so I put these pictures up here um, because of, there's three areas that I want to look at, actually four. Let me double check. But the first, you probably all know of Plato, right? Um, Platonism was one of the main uh, Greek philosophical arguments. And just to read about what, how this affects things. It says, Platonism, teaching on the superiority of the soul and the spiritual life over the body and physical life held powerful attractions for many Christians. It produced a tendency in some of them to interpret the spiritual life as a war between body and soul. 
Taken to its logical conclusion, this resulted in the belief system known as Gnosticism. They claim to have a special knowledge or gnosis of spiritual truth, which was not available to ordinary Christians. So this Gnosticism, you even see Paul beginning to argue against it in Galatians, but Gnosticism was a big heresy that the early church is writing against and condemning. And you see guys like Irenaeus and Chrysostom and various people writing against the Gnostics. These were people that claimed to be Christians, but they claimed to have the special knowledge. And unless you had the special knowledge, you know, you weren't really a Christian. And it was really combining this Greek philosophy with Christianity, which was not good. So that was Plato. Um, and, but then you get the, the Epicureans and the Stoics, which scripture specifically talks about. Well, where did Epicureanism come from? It came from this guy, Epicurus, another Greek philosopher. He founded a school of philosophy in Athens in about 307 BC. Epicurus taught that pleasure was the supremely desirable quality. However, he did not define pleasure in terms of physical self-indulgence. According to Epicurus, people could achieve true happiness only by a life of quietness, retirement, peace, and self-control. Unlike Platonism, Epicureanism was an anti-religious philosophy. Epicurus said that the fear of the gods and of what happens after death was one of the main focuses of human anxiety. But in reality, the gods took no interest in humanity or human affairs, and there was no life after death. Figuring this out was the only way to peace. So you can see how there's like some distortions you know, when it talks about having peace and self-control, that's fruits of the Spirit, right? But they, they distort it, right? It's, it's coming from, from within, they think. But you, you can see how that would appeal to people, okay? You know, we, I want to live a quiet life, right? Um, but it's a distortion of truth. Um, and then Stoicism. We get the word stoic today, right? If you're stoic, you're very like self-controlled, not very emotional. The name stoic comes from Stoa, a hall in Athens where Zeno, I think there's a picture, Zeno, um, he was a Greek philosopher taught. Stoics were materialists. They held that everything was ultimately made of matter, so there's no spirit. According to the Stoics, the human soul was a tiny portion or fragment of this divine reason, and humanity could find true fulfillment only by living in harmony with reason. The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius was a, was a Stoic. They believed in controlling, disciplining, and suppressing the passions or emotions. Stoicism had influence on the early church, thinking about ethical issues and ideas of divine providence. Um, why did this Greek philosophy have affect the church? Well, as we look, you know, the early church obviously started out as a Jewish movement, but it quickly moves out of Judaism as more and more Gentiles are saved and there becomes a, actually um, much hostility between Jews and Christians. Well, so a lot of these Greeks that were into Greek philosophy, they start getting saved, but oftentimes your past affects your thinking, right? And so they start bringing in some of these um, 
philosophical ideas that lead to problems. And the true church has to oppose these problems within Christianity. And you even, you see this in a lot, especially in Paul's letters. And remember Paul was the, the apostle to the, to the Gentiles, right? Whereas Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Um, but you see Paul having to refute some of these things. Um, now I mentioned that uh, Rome loved Greek culture and um, they actually adopted much of Greek culture as their own. And even the, uh, the, the Greek mythology, you see they adopt it. And you see that in scripture, how, um, how that works. You know, the, the Greeks had their, you know, Zeus and all this Greek mythology. Um, well, the Romans just took that and gave them new names, gave them Latin names. And where do you see that? Do you know? Where do you see that happening? You know, in Acts, when um, Paul is at Ephesus and um, a riot is about to start and they all rush into the great temple of a goddess of the Ephesians. What was her name? Did you say? Diana? What else was her name? Artemis, right. Art, she was the goddess of the hunt, as they call it. So, um, so what's, what's interesting is if you, if you look at that, so Greek, the Greek name for her was Artemis and the Latin name for her was Diana. Does anybody know what the actual in the Greek says in the Bible? It's a Greek, so it says Artemis. But if your King James says Diana, right? Um, because the Latin used Diana because that was the Roman name for her, was Diana. Um, and, uh, and more people at the time of the King James would understand, they didn't speak Greek, or very few people that spoke Greek, but they, Latin was very common at that point. So they used the, the Latin name for her. But it was the same, the same goddess, right? Same, came from Greek mythology, but the Romans just adopted it and gave them new names. I think, wasn't Jupiter or Zeus or something like that? So they, they used that. So it's, it's interesting um, how that works. Okay. All right. Now the, the Jewish context I want to talk about. I mean, I'm moving through this faster. I'm going to have to slow down than I expected it would. Let's see. Colossians 2.8. Oh, I wanted to just point that one out, talking about the Greek philosophy. Y'all probably know this verse. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So you see Paul there warning, don't adopt these philosophical ideas that lead to... Uh, wrong thinking about God and Christ. Um, Justin Martyr was a Greek philosopher, and um, he became a Christian. Um, probably Justin Martyr did not have a full copy of the scriptures because in some of his writings, you're like, you can kind of see he didn't quite have a uh, correct thinking about things. But he was a Christian, and he ultimately is, uh, is killed for his Christianity. So the, the Jewish background... Um, I was trying to think of what scripture, I wanted to start each of these sections uh, as we look at context with the scripture. And there's a lot of verses you could think about setting the stage for the Jewish background of, uh, of the early church. Luke 4, verses 20 to 21, it says, 
And he closed the book, speaking of Jesus, and he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them were in the synagogue, were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And y'all know that, that passage, Jesus beginning his ministry, and people are like, what is he going to say, you know? But the point is, Christ was the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, and there's so many passages. I mean, obviously, just reading Isaiah 53, you see him predicting Christ. Um, Psalm 22, predicting Jesus' death, and so many things. Um, Jesus obviously was a Jew. So this is the beginning of the early church, is a Jewish context. And when you see thousands of people getting saved, these are mostly Jews in the very beginning. But um, they quickly begin to get hostile, the, the Jews that do not accept Christ. And you remember the story of Stephen. Stephen, interestingly enough, when Stephen was one of the deacons that are um, that is appointed. You remember in Acts when it says the Hellenistic Jews were complaining because the, the, the Hellenistic widows were not getting um, the daily portions given to them. And so they decided, well, we need to come up with this office of, of deacon. And so they picked, was it seven? All seven of those are uh, Greek names, not Jewish names, which is interesting. Um, but it was primarily because they were Hellenistic. And that means they had basically lived in a, a, a Greek culture, were still Jewish, but had adopted a lot of the Greek um, just traditions. And so that in and of itself created animosity because the Jews who lived in Palestine, who primarily spoke uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, they, they, they did not like these Hellenistic Jews. They had problems with them. They said, you're not real Jews, right? You, you don't even speak Hebrew. You know, how can you be? But the, the Hellenistic Jews are like, you guys are a bunch of legalists and, you know, we don't like you. And so that created some initial animosity between um, the Hellenistic Jews and the Palestinian Jews. Um, but as, again, as Paul begins to go out and share the gospel with all these Gentiles, more and more Gentiles are beginning to be saved. And, um, and, the, and the Jews, again, they just develop a lot of animosity. And you, you see that the Romans, they didn't really distinguish between the two. They just said, you Christians are part of Judaism and you know, y'all go figure out your problems yourself. And you see that a lot in Acts when Paul is being tried. It's like, what, what are you, what is going on? Um, so actually, I meant to, uh, I do want to, uh, to talk about um, the different sects of Judaism. So not only is there that uh, distinction between the Hellenistic Jews and the uh, the Palestinian Jews, you also have, you know, that Judaism in and of itself is not uniform. And of course, we all know about the Pharisees and Sadducees, but there was other groups, the Zealots and the Essenes. And uh, I wanted to uh, read a little bit about these various groups. Um, it's very interesting. So just a little bit on the Sadducees. It says, they were a small party whose power base was centered on Jerusalem and the temple. Sadducees were almost all priests and members of the Jewish aristocracy, and they were the strongest group in the Sanhedrin. 
in religious matters, they accepted the authority of the Pentateuch alone. The first five, that's the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected any notion of life after death, denied the existence of angels and spirits, and did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And you see that in Matthew and in Acts when they talk about the Sadducees. You see Paul using that, remember, to divide the Pharisees and Sadducees by bringing up the resurrection. Um, nobody really knows where that name Sadducees came from or where it originated. Of course, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they were a large group emerging after Israel's exile in Babylon. And they exercised a great influence over ordinary uh, Jewish people. They were also the main enemies of Jesus. The name Pharisee means the separated ones or the pure ones. This refers to the high moral code of conduct the Pharisees observed. They were chiefly concerned with obedience uh, to God's law in everyday life, personal holiness, rather than temple worship. Pharisees believed that Israel's conquest by the Roman Empire was punishment by God for Jewish disobedience. The proper Jewish response was repentance and a return to individual and national obedience to God's will. In matters of theology, Pharisees were deeply opposed to the Sadducees. They had accepted the whole of the Old Testament, and they believed the reality of the spiritual world, life after death, and the resurrection of the body. Now, the Zealots. Um, you remember Simon the Zealot was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, they were zealots because they were very zealous. But the zealots actually are what cause the Jewish war and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, so when was the, by the way, this is known as Taniatic Judaism, which is uh, second temple Judaism. When was the first temple destroyed? Remember who destroyed it? Was it? Nebuchadnezzar, right. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it when they were first hauled off to Babylon. Um, but it's rebuilt. We're now in the second temple Judaism. Well, the zealots, they are very zealous. They decide they want to throw Rome off their back. Um, they start, they lead a revolt, but Rome is much stronger and they crush the zealots. Um, let's read this. The zealots or zealous ones were a party of terrorists or freedom fighters, perhaps founded by Judas the Galilean. Remember him? He's uh, mentioned um, by uh, Gamaliel. Remember when uh, they, um, in Acts chapter five, when the apostles um, are beaten and they, they leave saying, rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. But remember, Gamaliel says, look, this guy, Judas the Galilean, he led a revolt. I think, is that right? Or am I getting confused? Um, but, and it, you know, he got killed and came to nothing. Well, Jesus will come to nothing. I may be getting confused there. But anyway, he is mentioned in scripture. Uh, who wanted to liberate Judah, Judea from Roman rule by the use of violence. They thought it was sinful to pay taxes to the Roman emperor because God alone was the true king of Israel. Zealots often acted as assassins, killing those whom they regarded as national enemies. One of Jesus' 12 apostles, Simon the Canaanite, was a zealot. Okay, and the fourth sect was the Essenes. Anybody know what uh, community in Israel rep was represented by the Essenes? A discovery was made know, 70 years ago or so. That's right. The Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran community were Essenes, and they were a little different. Um, uh, they believed some weird things that weren't normal Jews didn't believe. 
And even in their own writings, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, there's a lot of writing about who those people were in the Qumran community, and they were different. They were not accepted by other Jews because of some odd beliefs that they had. Um, so I, I put down at the bottom a few of the early church historians, and let's see, I wanted to read a bit from Josephus. I can find it. I had it in here somewhere. Here it is. Um, Josephus, he, uh, maybe you remember, was an early, uh, he was early church, he was a, a, his, a Jewish historian. Um, he is one of the um, extra biblical um, accounts of Christ's um, crucifixion. But he talks about, and I just find this interesting, he talks about these various groups. Um, he says, there were, he doesn't talk about the zealots. He talks about the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Um, this is Josephus, so ladies, don't get mad at me when I read this because he's—it's <laughs> kind of weird. He says there were three schools of thought among the Jews, known as the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. The Essenes have the strictest way of life. Jews by birth, they have a strong sense of brotherhood with each other. They shun the seeking of pleasure as a vice and praise self-control and the mastery of one's passions as a virtue. They reject marriage and choose the children of others while they are still young and teachable, training them to live as a scenes. The problem is if you reject marriage and you don't have children, you don't last very long. <laughs> they do not actually wish to do away with marriage as the method of increasing the human race, but they fear the immorality of women being convinced that no woman ever remains faithful to one man. I don't know where he got that, but that's what he said. Um, they despise money and are communist as far as property is concerned. No Essene has, has more than any other. When men join their sect, they have to give up all their property to the common ownership of the community so that you will not see among the Essenes either degrading poverty or excessive wealth. Each man's possessions become part of the common fund. And like a group of brothers, their entire property belongs equally to all. He goes on and says, Of the other two schools of thought, people regard the Pharisees as the most authoritative interpreters of the law. They are the leading Jewish sect. They teach that everything happens according to destiny or the will of God. The actual decision to... Do good or evil rest chiefly with human beings, they say, but even so, in every human act, takes destiny takes a hand. They hold that every soul is immortal. Um, the only souls of good people receive new, only the souls of good people receive new bodies, while the souls of evil people go on to eternal punishment. The Sadducees on the, the other sect deny the existence of destiny in any form. They teach that God can neither decree sin nor have any involvement with it. People are absolutely free, they say, to choose between good and evil. Each individual must decide solely for himself. The Sadducees utterly deny the immortality of the soul, punishments in hell, and heavenly rewards. The Pharisees are bound together by a common spirit of friendship and seek to promote harmony with the common people. But the Sadducees are disagreeable even towards each other, they treat one another with the harshness that people usually reserve for foreigners. So, you know, that was Josephus's view of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and the Essenes, which is quite interesting. You can see how some of those ideas 
um, could be. Some of them were was actually right. They they got a few things right. I think each of them got a few things right, but they also got a lot of things wrong. And you can see how having among the Jews, if you were coming out of Pharisees, it might affect your view of Christianity as you become a, a Christian. Um, I wanted to uh, look at another. Um, so another uh, historian was Tacitus. He was a Roman. He is actually the earliest um, pagan outside of Christianity um, view of... Uh, oh, I'm running out of time. Uh, actually, I, I'll, I'll skip that. Maybe I'll read that next time. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, which is, is quite interesting, when you look... As the, as the church becomes more and more Gentile, it actually becomes more and more hostile towards uh, the, Jewish, the Jews as well. And you begin to see that in some of the early church fathers. Um, there are two writers in ancient history who could read and write both Greek and Hebrew. Anybody know who those two guys were? You might, that might kind of strike you as odd and think there were only two. Obviously, Paul spoke Greek and Hebrew. You know, why, why are there only two early church fathers? And that's, again, within the first 500 years. Well, it had a lot to do with that, that uh, separating from Judaism and the church wanting to, to push back because there came, became so much hostility between the two. Anybody know who the two were? One? No, no, this is after, after the Bible, so a few hundred years later. One, everybody should know where we get the Vulgate. Jerome. Jerome was uh, who translated um, the Bible into Latin, which became the Bible of the church for 1,100 years, basically, the Latin Vulgate. Um, and he was interesting. So he, I mentioned Augustine, he accepted the Apocrypha. Jerome did not. And why didn't Jerome? Probably because he moved to Bethlehem and he lived with Jews in Bethlehem. And he knew what the Jews actually thought. And they, the Jews at that period rejected the Apocrypha. They did not believe it to be scripture. But Augustine was kind of separated. He didn't know many Jews. In fact, he didn't speak Greek or Hebrew. He only spoke Latin. But Augustine, I mean, uh, Jerome translates the Bible into to Latin. That becomes the Latin Vulgate. And interestingly enough, as you, as you get to the Reformation, um, when... Uh, Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, he was the first person to make a printed edition of the Greek New Testament, and that ends up being part of what is used, um, was used by Tyndale and then uh, the King James translators. But before Erasmus uh, does this, there's a guy, is an Italian guy named Lorenzo Valla in the 1400s, and he's looking at the Vulgate, and he says, the, the main Vulgate has been copied many times over a thousand years, right? But he also has Jerome's uh, commentary. And in Jerome's commentary, it's also his translation. And he's comparing the two. Well, the commentary wasn't copied very much, not near as much. And he notices that there's differences between the scripture and Jerome's commentary as there is in the Vulgate. Now, Lorenzo Valla, he, he suspected that it was because of all the copying of the, of the Vulgate. But he did not want to have his head separated from his shoulders, so he held on to it, and he did not say anything about it. But Erasmus then, in uh, late 1400s, early 1500s, he discovers this, 
And he says, well, I'm going to use Vala's work and, and create a new Latin version. He wants to purify the Latin. At the risk of his own life, he does this because the church said, our Vulgate is true. You're not going to oppose it. Well, um, he does it anyway, and that becomes the Greek New Testament that is used, the printed edition that is used for other translations and other languages. The other guy, real quick, who was the other guy? His name was Origen. Origen was a wild-eyed heretic. Um, he, well, in some ways he actually had some things right, but in other ways he was one of the main causes from separating from the Old Testament. He believed the Old Testament must be interpreted as allegory. Unless you interpret it that there was hidden meaning in the Old Testament, unless you interpret it as allegory, you didn't really understand it. And so there became for a long time this um, diminishing of the Old Testament and not wanting to even understand it, not wanting to read it. We just focus on the New Testament. What's the problem? The New Testament quotes the Old Testament over and over. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, just read it. He said, Jesus this was written to fulfill, you know, this happened to fulfill. And so, and so much of the New Testament is written in light of the Old Testament and things that happen in the Old Testament. Well, when you have this theology that we don't need the Old Testament, you, you lose some of the understanding of what the New Testament is talking about. So anyway, I think it's time to stop there. Um, I hope y'all found this interesting. We'll move on to talking about some of the other early church fathers and some interesting people next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day, and uh, Lord, we thank you for all those who have gone before us, Lord, who we can learn from, uh, whether it be good or bad, Lord, pray that you would help us to be biblical in all of our thinking, and that we may trust you, Lord, I just ask your blessings on this day, may you be glorified by our worship, and through your word and the preaching this day, and we just give you all the praise and the glory, in Jesus' name, amen.